It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. What's your favorite song by Stevie Nicks? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's probably um, Rhiannon, but uh, but Landslide's up there, if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, Landslide's a good song. I don't know what it's about, though. Does anyone? Uh, you know, apropos of why you're bringing it up, I read a story that it was about avalanches because Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham lived in Aspen for some time, and she supposedly wrote the song in Aspen um, about avalanches, but, uh, you know, whatever way to, the word avalanche in a song doesn't really, didn't work with what she was thinking, so mm. she used landslide. Oh, okay. Or she was make, mistaken about what they were called. Could have been, but that, that's, the, that's sort of the possibly apocryphal story that I heard. Although it is true that they, they spent a good chunk of time up in Aspen. I asked that question completely expecting a non-serious answer, and I'm really happy to, to have learned that information. <laughs> yeah, well, why else did you bring up the song Landslide? <laughs> it's just been on my mind lately as I've peered through the, uh, th- through the debris of my social media feed and mm. seen one incredible video and also you know tragic story after another of mountains moving and producing incredible landslides or avalanches and uh in one case killing a bunch of climbers and so i thought we could talk about that today because i'd say that's been kind of like the big trending story in the in the mountain world over the last 30 days is we've seen first a pretty significant avalanche in the dolomites that killed nine climbers um, on Marmalada. Then in Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, there were four boulders up on the Upper Chaos boulder field, and basically the entire, you know, mountain moved and just sent boulders trundling down their way. Our uh, our, our friend William Mondragon was up there and, and captured some video of that, and just like horrifying and utterly awesome and astounding video of of just kind of what mother nature is capable of and then just uh, a couple days ago i was going through the social media feed and saw this insane avalanche in kyrgyzstan where there were a bunch of trekkers or climbers or something like that who were walking through kyrgyzstan and saw this insane avalanche coming at them from across the valley it spilled into the into the um nadir of the valley and then just like ricocheted up toward them and and ended up completely engulfing them and as our friend uh at uk climbing past podcast guest natalie berry pointed out to me it was the most british reaction ever where it was like so on the guy the guy who was filming this video is british and he was just so understated about it like oh 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 that's interesting oh oh here comes an avalanche my way oh 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 bullocks oh oh i'm being buried right now oh oh my oh. and <laughs> it was pretty like, awesome yeah. yeah it was it was like i mean you could put any other uh <laughs> 
any other um, nationality in that position, and they'd be like, "Holy fuck, fucking shit, Jesus Christ!" <laughs> and uh, how did everyone survive? Like, I mean, it looks like they get buried. I mean, I, the video I saw cuts right as the snow. Like, he he seems to like dip behind a rock. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's fucking there. Like, what do you know the aftermath of it? I mean, in all the posts I saw, they said no one was killed. Yeah, was I it think just the energy I, was gone, and it was just like the puff snow by the time it hit them. I think that's what it was. I think that it was just that they were high enough on that ridge, and the mm-hmm. energy of the of that massive avalanche had just kind of uh, dissipated enough to not not be significantly detrimental to their to their well-being right i mean it's i've watched that video like at least three or four times at this point Mm -hmm. and it just seems obvious that it's going to hit you you know even at the beginning parts of the video like it seems obvious that it's going to be coming to get you like as far away as it is and i'm sure there's like weird iphone compressions or whatever that that are making it that are belying the uh, the true distance that uh, Avalanche traveled, but you watch it a couple times and you're like, how could you not see that and then want to run? But then on the other hand, where would you go? You yeah, know? well, that's like, just the thing. I mean, in the time it took to get there, you run like what? Because he's in Talus. So where do you go and how far do you get? Like another 30 yards? Like that's going to make right. a bit of difference. <laughs> um, and maybe he was like, bright enough that he 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 knew he was going to duck behind the rock before it got there yeah so i mean it's it's wild and like you said the nonchalance of it i mean he keeps the camera up he catches the whole damn thing and it looks like it's in slow motion because it's it is so far away that you know it it, it, it's so big that it looks like it's like he's filming in slow motion until it arrives and then all of a sudden it's like a fucking freight train you know that rolls over him so um i mean it's it's quite the catch like to have like gotten your camera up right as it started. It's a pretty intense uh, piece of, um, it's the best avalanche video I've ever seen. I mean, it's by far like it's so it's amazing. It's so awesome and amazing. And I saw a lot of people like getting pissed off that people were sharing it so widely. Cause you're like, these people are idiots and they're privileged, you know, hikers or whatever. They're all rich people on some guided fucking thing or whatever. And, uh, what? I, yeah, people were saying that. You know, they were like, they were. I don't know. You know, any any time you um, any time you see this kind of content that uh, speaks to just how fragile we are as as these little you know soft uh, pink on the inside like buckets of meat that could just <laughs> be wiped away from the face of the earth. You know, people people start coming up with like moral reasons for why you should be doing this or shouldn't be doing that. Oh, I see. You know oh, I, mean? I see. I see. And yeah. The why did Alex Honnold sold? Yeah. Argument. That kind of, that kind of thing. And, and you should so be people, home with a good job having babies or something. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of that. There was just, I don't know. There was just a lot of just, you know, just kind of trying to find a, come up with a reason for why this is an irresponsible video that mm. was going viral and everyone was sharing. I, I actually thought it was awesome. I, I loved it. I thought it was like, I mean, I love that no one got hurt, of course, but I, I loved seeing that awesome spectacle of, of nature. And I was right there in that guy's shoes watching that video, you know, mm-hmm. like feeling, 
feeling like, oh my God, I'm like, this is fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's, yeah, it's like the freaking Jaws theme playing faster and faster as it gets closer and closer. Yeah. But you know, it reminded me of is that when I was in New Zealand uh, climbing Mount Cook, actually, we climbed it and then. Not long after, but while I was still there, uh, the top of that fucking thing fell off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just looked it up to, to sort of get the details because it was 1991, so it was quite some time ago. But yeah, it says uh, the National Park's largest rock, recent rockfall, and geologically, you know, 1991 was not even like a minute ago. When the top of Mount Cook fell off, the tallest mountain in New Zealand lost 32 feet of height, 10 meters, when an estimated 423 million cubic feet of rock and ice fell more than 1.67 miles down the eastern side of the mountain mm-hmm. and then shot up the other side of the valley um, a little bit. And uh, there were climbers in the hut, but the way the hut was situated is it's not in this, it's actually sitting right above the um, kind of run out of this thing. Um, there were climbers gearing up to go up, but it happened like at midnight in the middle of the night. Um, But people were awake and they were preparing to go climb the thing. So, you know, again, talking about the kind of randomness of whether you're there when this shit happens or not, um, you know, those guys were... They're like, sweet, that's 10 less meters we have to climb. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They, they, you know, but they, those people were like, you know, 10 hours away from maybe being on top when it happened or being in its path. Although the the way it fell down was probably not in the path of any of the folks that were going to be climbing it. But I totally remember it because I was hitchhiking back to Christchurch and I, you know, got in the car and was like, Hey man, you know, how are you? And the guy was like, well, what have you been doing? And I told him, you know, all, we just started talking and it got around to the fact that I'd climbed Mount Cook and the guy reached into the back seat, you know, which I don't know if it made me nervous at the time, but you know, he's reaching for his machete or his axe to like lop my head off. But, uh, and he pulls out and he drops the, the paper in my lap and, and the front, front of the paper was uh, about the, how the top of the mountain had fallen off. So, yeah. So that, I mean, you know, a, a geological movement, um, those mountains are, are one of the more f- quickly uplifting ranges in the world as far as geologically. Um, and they're choss. So. It was probably just more of a combination of geology and choss uh, falling off the top of the mountain because it was the basis of it was rock, not not. Um, it took a bunch of snow with it, but it was a rock slide mm-hmm. at the bottom of it. Just to think how close you were to dying on a geological level. Just on like, geological level, yeah, it's like a second ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so um, you know, jokes aside, it was it, you know this is a serious topic and. Uh, I thought we could just talk about like what's going on. Why is why is the Earth uh, rejecting our our efforts to be to be in the mountains right now, Chris? Well, I mean, you know, one of the controversies surrounding at least one of those stories, the one the 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 more serious and tragic one of the Dolomite involved, um, you know, posting it up with with a headline that that directly and without pulling any punches, blamed climate change, um, which uh, apparently upset people as well as sort of a, a clickbaity version of it with, you know, just starting with the death part of it because as Spinal Tap said, death sells. But, but it's just like, you know, I, I don't know if people like climate deniers, climate change deniers were mad or, or I don't know what sort of the controversy around blaming that, maybe because of the specificity of it, but 
I mean, that's what's happening. Like that's, that's what's causing, I mean, maybe who knows about the, the, um, the one in Rocky because did that involve snow or was that just a pure landslide? It was just a pure you know? landslide, yeah. just a random landslide. I'm, I, I, I haven't followed up on that. If there was, if any geologists have come up with a theory mm. about why that happened, but it appeared to just be, uh, the mountain, the mountain literally moving, like coming yeah. to life and just moving. Right. And, um, I mean, that creating, could be, creating yeah. new sick boulders for us to climb. But I mean, with the snow, it's like, that's been a story of the last 20 years is how fast these glaciers are melting and they're falling mm-hmm. apart. And I mean, you can just watch your roof after a snowfall. It's like, it'll sit there nice and quietly until the sun comes out and then it starts to fucking fall off your roof. Like the heating of the planet is, is reducing these glaciers. And as they, as they melt, they fall apart, you know? And I, I just don't, I just don't see how that's not really the basis of of what's going on, especially with these ones, because they, the stories, you know, in, in both cases talk about how there's just this, been this huge reduction. And as they recede, they kind of get capped off these mountains. So, um, I mean, whether or not it changes the way we climb in the mountains, I don't know if that ever happens, but like, you know, are we more unsafe or, or it's, it still seems as though, you know, it's like wrong place, wrong time. Um, to mm-hmm. a certain extent. I mean, there's this question now that, like, given this knowledge that we have that mountains are going to be kind of moving more rapidly, maybe than we've been used to in the last, or within our lifetimes, how does that change our behavior? And how does that change how we, you know, travel across Serac, across like ice falls and, um, and glaciers and so forth? You know, a lot of the experts thought that this uh, glacier. I mean, it's that- not going to change my behavior at all, Andrew, because I don't fucking do that. <laughs> I don't travel across glaciers and seracs and things. So my my behavior is going to just go ahead as is. Well, I mean um, these these anyway, people these people in um <laughs> I mean just to push back on that these people in Kyrgyzstan were basically just mm-hmm. trekking along a normal route. You know, they were just they were hiking mm-hmm. and um they just happened to be within proximity of huge mountains that unleashed an ungodly you know avalanche that came all the way across a whole valley and still buried them with snow and so Mm -hmm. yeah i mean you you we live in the mountains you know we like live near big peaks and and so that kind of thing is is within the realm of possibility even if you're just going to somewhere that you think is safe yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I and just to like uh, steal man the other argument about people being upset about this clickbaity headline that appeared on outside, which was nine climbers are dead in the Dolomites. Climate change is to blame. I would say that there's probably no climate scientist on Earth who would who would pinpoint you know a single event to climate change. You know, because it's it misrepresents what the idea is, which is that it's this it's this trend. It's not, it's not a single weather event. It's not like it's as, it's Mm -hmm. as dumb to say like, Oh, it's snowing now. Like is, is climate change a real thing? You know, like you, you don't get to say that. And then also just say that climate change is to blame for this Serac fall, which happens all the time in the mountains. And especially, you know, in, uh, in, in this corner of Italy, it's been a drought season. They've had like, a drought and whatever, you know, it could just be a, a, a random drought or it could be attributed to climate change. And so climate scientists, I think would probably hedge on the, 
on not trying to say like, this is what climate change is, or this Mm -hmm. is the face of climate change, because it's more about understanding the, just the trend and the, like where the averages are and the medians are for temperatures and so forth and how that's changing over the, the long term as opposed to just single events. So I understand, I understand why people are probably pushing back on, on that headline a little bit. Right. I mean, it's, it's too specific, but then part of me is just like, yeah, but you know, we're like frogs in the boiling water, right? Like we're just like, yeah, but that bubble there, that's not due because the water's boiling and that bubble over there isn't. And then pretty soon we're boiled, you know? (laughs) So I, I, I get it. Like this is extremely specific. Um, but to, 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 look at the drought that's there and not be able to attribute that to the trends of climate change then you're looking at a bigger long like longer term thing you know so eventually there ha- i mean do you know what i mean like are we just going to pretend as though nothing is but everything i mean do you know what i mean like when well, do we when do yeah. we like come clean about like what's what totally i mean like yeah <laughs> I, I agree with you, and I, I I do think climate change is to blame for this event, um, and mm-hmm. whether directly or indirectly or however you want to frame it that way. I mean, we are living in climate change, and so that is that should be given with any of these stories. It's it mm-hmm. it doesn't need it almost doesn't need to be the headline because it's incidental. A- aside from addressing the like what we do about climate change, which is a separate question, from a climbing perspective how do we change our behavior, you know, given that climate change is here and given that climate change is going to be part of our risk calculations that we have when we're evaluating like what is and isn't safe. And I would argue that, you know, maybe there does need to be a recalibration because we are clearly seeing a more volatile mountain environment, things that, you know, if, you, if you're looking up at slopes and you're like, oh, that doesn't ever slide, that's like never been a problem, you know, like, well, maybe it is this season and maybe it will be going forward for the next 50 years. Like mm-hmm. we, we could be at that precipice. And so I think that hedging our head, you know, just being a little bit more safe and uh, calculated with how we, even if you're bouldering in the mountains, like which many people do clearly, like, like our friends who are up in, in Rocky Mountain Park. I don't know if that geological event has climate change to blame for it, but do you just continue on as business as usual? Or do you look at these three kind of really major events and say, hold on, do I, do I actually change the way that I interact with the mountains? Well, leaving out should, I think that the answer will be not really. I mean, I mean, whether you should is one thing, but whether people are going to, I, I, you know, are, is like, again, is like this sort of Himalayan, you know, Everest, like craziness going to abate because uh, obvious these things are probably going to affect what happens on those mountains. It's like, no, because it's too, it's too Russian roulette, like deep. No, I, I, you know, those people just happen to be there and it's like getting hit by a meteor, at least for now. I just feel like, you know, and and they address that in the article about the Dolomites one, because there was some talk of like, oh, they should have known the officials. Now we're, you know, Europe is is got a lot more regulations in the mountains, and people, I think, put a lot more on officials to sort of mitigate danger there in terms of how they sort of deal with their mountains versus like here in Colorado or in the United States. 
Um, there's much more infrastructure for safety. And, you know, there was some calls of like, well, you should have known or these, there were these warning signs. But the final assessment at the end of the article was that, yeah, that it could have gone yesterday, could have gone tomorrow, 10 minutes later, 10 minutes before, you know, or, or 50 years from now. So they're super hard to predict. And I think most people will just be like, yeah, I, I mean, that sucks. And they were there and it's, it's, it's terribly tragic, but I'm still going climbing, you know, next week. I'll just try not to be under there as, for as long a time or something like that. But within a year, if nothing else happens or two years, it'll just be business as usual because people just don't think it's going to happen to them. It's like getting attacked by a bear or something like that, you know? Yeah, it is kind of the, um, it speaks to the limitations of our, of our brains, I think. <laughs> that the, the, I, I don't see like what the logical, or I don't see a logical like response to mm-hmm. it's sort of like beyond comprehension in some mm-hmm. sense because you know avalanches have always happened they've always been a part right. of our of the mountains and being there and it's always been part of the risk calculation and you know th- that they happen perhaps more frequently on a geological scale or a climate change scale which again is a time frame that we can't really comprehend as as human beings at least not in a meaningful way, then what, what do we do with that information? Right. And so yeah, it's, exactly. it, it kind of just feels like business as usual is going to continue. Well, that's, I mean, it's really like a little micro version of the problem with climate change to begin with, is it's happening too slowly it, it, to, to sort of register its effects until it's sort of too late. And so, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's, it, we're all like the, you know, to, maybe belabor the metaphor it's like we're all the whole world is like just dancing around underneath a freaking serac right now and we're just Mm -hmm. like waiting for it but it didn't happen today and it's not gonna happen tomorrow and it's not you know what i mean so clearly chris you're in the camp of not going to change your behavior and how you use the mountains (laughs) and think about them um (laughs) again like i just you know i mean i don't see myself in in that environment where it's a terribly big concern, you know, as far as my, you know, yeah, as far as my actual actions in the mountains, I'll just continue on my, I, my policy of not being near uh, big giant snow fields. All right. So I think the takeaway is just stay away from the mountains. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cody Townsend is a professional skier from Tahoe who also loves rock climbing. His latest harebrained idea is the 50 Project, to ski all 50 of the descents listed in the 50 Classic Ski Descents of North America, a gorgeous coffee table book that was created by friends of the show, Penn Newhard and Chris Davenport. Check it out. Andrew, do you have skis on your feet either on the way up or down? Can you actually call it climbing? I call that um, exercise. Like it's like <laughs> basically like a, you know, like some kind of like trendy workout bar fitness class with expensive gear. Well, I have a story too. Is that when I was in New Zealand um, as a younger man, when I was a aspiring mountaineer, I climbed this this route on on Mount Cook called Zerbriggan's Ridge, and uh, the very day that we climbed it, this um, team. God, there was a a really big time snowboarder, actually, um, 
He was a North Face guy. His name start, last name started with his oh Jim Zellers. Oh, yeah, yeah he, those guys like helicoptered up and skied or snowboarded, and, and a Kiwi guy skied the route that I climbed, which didn't make me feel that great about my ascent actually. And then it, I saw the the documentary later, and I actually you could see them like crossing my crossing our uh, kick steps. Um, which they were probably bummed about in the shot, but you know we had gotten up earlier than them, so <laughs> at least we got ahead of them. Um, so they didn't actually come down and do like some, you know, spray of snow in my face as I was like clawing my way up the side of what I thought was like a completely rad route. So ever since then, I have a lot of resentment about skiing. <laughs> I could see that. I could see that. I mean, my biggest thing with it is the fact that I hate walking down mountains. I think walking down mountains is one of the worst things on the planet. And maybe it's because I grew up skiing and then got into more climbing and going under my own power up mountains. But the thought of walking down a mountain and taking about 10 times longer than it should to me is just asinine. Like even when I'm like kind of running and training and whatnot, like every time I go for a training run and I'm like running up mountains, I get to the top and I'm like, oh, God damn it. I got to run back down this. And like I dream of like maybe one day I should learn how to speed fly so I could just like bring a little parachute and get off this mountain. So like that's my thing that's always been with like ski mountaineering per se is that just <laughs> I hate walking down mountains. I, I, it's brutal. Well, I think that we could probably find a distinction here in categorizing because there's like the skiing up and skiing down. Yeah. And then there's like the climbing up with the skis and then skiing down a different route, like down the descent. Um, you know, I think like didn't uh, didn't Chantel Astorga just do some rad thing or maybe it was last year where they I don't know. I saw some picture of her like cl like climbing really hard um, with some skis on her back. Um, so, so that kind of thing, I mean, it's like, and I guess really joking aside, that's kind of what we're talking about is where this, this whole thing integrates with climbing where it stops being just skiing and becomes climbing skiing and, and that sort of thing. So, um, maybe, maybe we could kind of hash that out because you spent a little time trying to do that on online recently. <laughs> Go yeah, uh, I was trying to create a definition for ski mountaineering because I've had this debate and it's been talked about in tents and it's just like something that you're we discuss as people that go into the mountains and go climb and ski and ski bigger lines or bigger peaks and whatnot. And you're like, where is the line from when you go from just backcountry skiing to ski mountaineering? Like, what is the delineating thing? And I you know, tried to come up with these things and these like definitions of being like, oh, once you have like ice tools in your hand and crampons on your feet, that's kind of where a lot of people believe ski mountaineering starts. And then you're like, well, actually, what about like mountaineering? Like, what's the true definition of mountaineering? It's like going up high, big peaks. And so you're like prominent peaks like um, Tacoma, Rainier or Denali um, in North America are just these big prominent peaks is what like mountaineering is. So if you're ski mountaineering, you're just going up prominent peaks and skiing back down. But then you're like, well, I don't know. There's a lot of other peaks out there that you would be kind of blending with and you're using all the techniques of like climbing. But it starts it starts getting really wishy-washy and it starts getting really, really narrow. 
And this whole series, which I kind of, I don't know, it was almost like performance art. I started to piss everybody off. I started like narrowing and narrowing and everyone thought I was just trying to like hype myself up and uh, be like super cool. Like I'm the only ski mountaineer in the world <laughs> and all you guys are not. Is Narrow the definition was... down to one person. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> matches it's one what person. I do. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You, you were all backcountry skiers and I'm a ski mountaineer. So um, it kept going that way. <laughs> like literally people were getting really angry in the comments. And I like wrapped it all up. This is like going on for a week. And I'm sitting here in the background kind of like deciding. I'm like, man, do I like pull the trigger and end the post and end the series? Because everyone's getting pissed off and I'm trying to cancel myself um, in the process, which, Andrew, you know, you're pretty familiar with, right? (laughs) Um, I've had, I have some experience with that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. Right. I don't know if your, your experience with it would say I was trying to cancel myself, but it almost seemed like I was, and people were like acting like I was trying to be a arrogant asshole. But then it was just kind of coming to the conclusion that it was like, no, it doesn't matter. Like in skiing, it doesn't matter at all. And these definitions are something that I actually fight back against a lot in skiing. Like, um, you know, there's been a lot of times that people have tried to create rating systems for ski mountaineering and for me it's they're completely useless and something i would want to fight back against like heavily because of the culture that i think it creates and then two it just would never work because in skiing like a 35 degree like ice gully can be 10 times gnarlier than a 55 degree 3000 foot face with like death exposure but in perfect snow like it's you just the the conditions are everything when it comes to skiing. Yeah, I mean it, it's definitely reminding me of. I mean, I don't even know if this is an active debate, but I've always kind of wondered about it myself. Is the is the whole alpinism, you know, alpinist mountaineer thing? Um, and and I always and I've always just kind of assumed that alpinists invented the word alpinist to differentiate themselves from the sort of trudging up a big, uh, you know, just like sort of a big snowfield up to the top of a very high mountain, which we sort of associate associate with mountaineering, you know, and, you know, but then it like, it leaks over to what you're talking about because of the word mountaineering. But I feel like alpinists, you know, felt at some point in the seventies that they had to like make themselves apart from that expedition style and that kind of thing. And, and so they are either organically or whatever, this new definition of alpinism came into, came into play, which is also like, a blurry line definition, you know, type thing that you don't really know exactly where mountaineering ends and alpinism. I, I actually, I have a way to distinguish oh. the two. If you can <laughs> ski down it, it's mountaineering. <laughs> if it's too steep, it's alpinism. <laughs> so, uh, so you're saying ski alpinism does not exist. No, no, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> it can. Yeah. What about me and my friends wanted to come up with a, a new, um, form called shroupinism so you're shrouping <laughs> like you're skiing hard but you're alpinist like that was kind of our joke or shroupinists um what about that does that work andrew yeah and i like that sh- i like that i could get behind that <laughs> totally but it, i've also seen like i forget who the party was but i think it was last year it's like up huntington or up hunter um a party of three went up it with like super lightweight skis and lightweight ski boots full like you know, had all the grades of the W's and the M's that I don't know or understand because, yeah, I guess it just points to your fact that I never know those grades because I'm not an alpinist and then skied down off the backside to kind of descend a lot quicker. I mean, if that's 
not ski alpinism. I don't know what is. Um, the other kind of tangential thing that just came to mind was hearing you talk about how you hate walking down stuff. There's also this parallel um, with climbers where obviously rappelling is like our least favorite thing to do so much to the uh, degree that Dean Potter like basically took up base jumping. So he didn't have to rappel down like mountains anymore. Um, so if you ever get into, uh, into the big alpinism game, Cody, you, you might have to learn to base jump if you don't yeah. know. Already. I, I, I went down that path actually, cause where I grew up in Tahoe and, uh, the people I surrounded myself with got really into base jumping for a while. Mm. So, uh, the Shane McConkey's Eric Rohners, JT Holmes, and a bunch of other people, but you know, two out of the three people I listed are, are dead from that sport. And, uh, I started to learn because it was this kind of thing where it was like, yeah, Base jumping is the coolest thing in the world. And I did think about it. I remember seeing Dean Potter being like, man, if you climb up El Cap and then just get to jump off, like that seems amazing. That's like the best day ever. But then as I started to get into it, people started getting seriously hurt. I remember thinking at that time, like, man, I do a really dangerous sport uh, being like free ride skiing and doing that for a living. And it's like my main thing. I get hurt all the time and then go to another sport to, that's even more dangerous as your off-season passion that just seems kind of stupid and then yeah we started losing tons of friends and a lot of people that sport so uh, i've uh, i've committed to my family personally that i will never get into air sports um they're a little too a little too dangerous ski mountaineering or whatever you want to call it is still you know quite dangerous and we've lost lots of amazing skiers just to avalanches and stuff like that and so what you're doing is not exactly safe even if it's safer than you know aerial sports um, Cody, you come from, um, you come from that, like the, the crucible of this kind of action sports, you know, mentality of, uh, you know, the Shane McConkey's and the 1990s era, like, you know, point break style, extreme sports, like mentality. Um, and a lot of that's faded as so many of the best have, have kind of died. So, you know, you're a dad now you're, you know, you're still doing risky stuff, but how do you think about, how do you think about the conversation of like risk and death and, you know, approaching risky things? And, uh, yeah, I would just love to hear your perspective on that. I think it's in my mind a lot. And I think it's, it's, it's weird because when I started to get into climbing for my own lines or ski mountaineering, I actually took it and went into this world because of the fact of the danger of the other world I was in. Um, you know, in 2014, I had a line that went super viral. It's called like the most insane line ever. And uh, it was just the, the thing called this crack. And uh, I remember doing it and it was like something I've been working on for years. It was like my own personal project of looking for this like uh, super steep, long, narrow couloir up in a, like a place like Alaska and try and ski it as fast as possible. I wanted to straight line it. Um, I didn't quite straight line it, but I skied it pretty damn fast. And I remember it was like kind of the only thing that got me up that year. Um, the rest of the year of filming and filming in ski movies, jumping off cliffs, doing backflips, all that stuff was started to become like pretty routine. And I wasn't really feeling that like not even just that rush, but even that challenge of, of those other things. And the only thing that felt like a challenge was a line like that, where if anything goes wrong, if you, you know, hook an edge, if you blow a turn, you're, you're dead, you're tumbling into rocks at like 75 miles an hour. Um, and I started thinking to myself of like, man, like, 
what are you going to do to top that? How are you going to continue to challenge yourself? And that's when I started kind of moving into climbing for my own lines because I came to this realization, like there was a whole different world out there, this this world of of skiing and mountains that I didn't quite understand. Everything up to that point had been accessed via helicopters, snow machines, and or um, short ski tours. It was all pretty much mechanized access. And I was working on just like doing stuff the most, the gnarly way I could going down and going up presents a whole different set of factors of learning snowpacks, learning exposure, learning how to climb for your own lines, the fitness that goes into it and the planning and logistics. And I started going into it. And then you kind of, you know, getting into it, you're realizing you're like, man, this is dangerous too. But I have the ability to control things a little bit better. The one thing I like about it is the fact that you're spending weeks on end, if not months, if not years on one line. So you're waiting for those conditions and you realize that patience is the name of the game, understanding the snowpack, understanding your route and timing it for that perfect, perfect window is the most important thing. That being said, you're still spending a lot of time under overhead exposure. And that to me is the thing, like I try to create rules for myself in the mountains. You know, it's the difference between rock climbing and ski mountaineering um, is that we pretty much always have overhead hazard, you know, like when you're near climbing El Cap, like you're not worried about the entire mountain falling down on top of you. I mean, these days, maybe a little bit more. We've seen some big rock falls, but in skiing, like you're always worried about avalanches, sloughs, uh, cornice falls. There's always some sort of overhead hazard. So when it comes to risk, what I try and do is like mitigate it in every way possible. So if there is overhead hazard, like I just don't even climb that line or I find a different way around it. Um, I try and find every single factor that keeps me out of that overhead hazard for as long as possible and as short as possible under it. But that being said, a lot of people have done that. A lot of really talented ski mountaineers have taken the same approach and a lot of them haven't come back out out of the mountains. And and for me, it's like, I, I don't know if I'm naive or if I'm a genius because what I'm trying to do is like, I feel like I'm being conservative out there. I feel like I'm always biased to turn around, to go the harder way that's safer, the longer way that's safer, the uh, to be more patient. And to me, I'm like, oh no, I'm pretty conservative. But the hardest part with skiing is like, you kind of don't know when you're getting away with it. Like, you know, if again, and to compare it to climbing, if you like blow a hold or don't have like a good grip on the rock, you kind of know like, oh, these are the limits. I can't go past this. Um, When it comes to skiing, like you could ski down something and be like, it's perfect. And little did you know, you just like turned two feet to the right of exactly where that pocket would have popped and the whole thing would have slid and you're dead. Um, So reinforcing your like your rules is like the most important thing to me. But um I don't know. I there's like a confirmation bias that's kind of born of of good luck, is what you're saying. Like you you can get lucky and it can confirm that you've been making right decisions, but that that might not be the case. For sure, no, it is hundred percent. Like I started, I actually gave a talk at an avalanche presentation and a few number of years ago that I'd heard this concept from a a friend. It was called the normalization of deviance, Um, and it's this concept that 
you when you break your own rules you start to normalize deviant behavior and if you you know like we have these five red flags so if it's getting warm during the day and you're like oh this is a big red flag but you go up and you send and you ski back down essentially you're starting to process your brain into being like no that's okay to get away with like this next time uh it warms up your brain's going to be a little bit more biased towards like no like, let's go. The warming isn't that big of a red flag. So I actually use that thought process a lot. And that's why I try not to break rules. So I create my rules for myself and I stick to them because otherwise, you know, you start to slowly inch your way into greater and greater risk without even like really knowing it. You think you're like still conservative and making good, good decisions, but you, you probably aren't. Can I ask you, um, I mean, it's sort of a bunch of questions in my head, but one of them is, is, you know, being super goal oriented is definitely part of how we succeed in this, whether we're climbing, whether we're skiing motivated, I'm motivated by goals. I'm motivated by this line, you know, talk a little bit about that in terms of your rules. Um, and in, cause it, it feels like, and kind of like that bias, it feels like that those goals could, you know, motivate you, but they could also motivate you to be pushing your rules because God damn, I'm sick of being here. I'm sick of like trying this thing and I need to, I need to get it done and I, and, and move on. And, you know, I mean the whole thing with red pointing or with trying to climb something that you have to try over and over again, eventually you're just like, Jesus, like I got to get this done. Like we're all here. We all spent the money. We all flew in, you know, how do you sort of mitigate that with your rules to turn around or to to call it quits when you're just at the edge of could we possibly get it done this time yeah um that's a question i debated myself for years and it's ironic because i started this thing called the 50 project trying to climb and ski all the Mm -hmm. 50 classic ski designs yeah that's what's in my head when i'm asking you yeah and i before i committed myself publicly to this like i hated objective skiing and i thought list skiing was stupid like, I literally was like, this is really dumb. <laughs> Going for objective-based skiing is the most dangerous thing you can do because it frames this goal as, like, the most important thing and not coming home at the end of the day. And before I started this project, I honestly was, like, debated myself for two years of, like, how are you going to mitigate that desire to push on to be like, yeah, we, we just drove halfway across the country. We spent thousands of dollars to be here. This is the third try. And it's like, ah, it's kind of quasi, but you're like, ah, it'll be fine. It's something that I'm like, I think I have control of. And I can be in my mind being like, no, you'll be willing to turn around when the signs point to you got to turn around. But I will say like, there's been times out there where I've been like, no, we got to push through. And it's a really, really hard thing to to control your emotions in the in the in that time. And it's something like what I try to do is like reset after every line I'm successful with or unsuccessful with and come back and try to focus on each line as an individual thing. But I also know like there's no doubt in my mind that some of these emotions can start to creep in or they can start to bias you towards seeing the good signs as opposed to seeing the bad signs and it's it's kind of what i actually find really fascinating and enjoyable about this process and this project is 
the mental games that I have to go through, um, the self checks. Like I, I'll, I'll be there and be like, Hey, you've been successful for the last two months. You haven't turned around on a line yet. Why, why are you doing something wrong? And I have to like recheck myself and be like, no, go back to the beginning stages of this project. Go back to when you were complete novice to this and think like that novice again and don't let this the experiences of the past two months warp your decision making um it's been i again i think it's kind of one of the more fascinating things because it's such a introspective kind of project you it's really in your own mind the whole time and you kind of learn about yourself through the process you know like one of my I would say heroes is Alex is Honold because of the fact I think his mental game is on a different level. I think, you know, we talk about clutch performances and like in normal sports, like Tom Brady driving down to win the Super Bowl. Yeah. Well, if he loses the Super Bowl, like cool, like he's still a millionaire and he's still married to Giselle and he's like <laughs> the greatest quarterback of all time. We're like, Alex blows it. You, you die. And like, you know, I think to that mental control of thinking rationally and these highly emotional decisions and thinking like an accountant at that moment and thinking just like by the numbers is is the trick in this all. And I think like someone like Alex and, you know, climbers in general can have that. And that's why I definitely appreciate uh, watching and kind of being uh, inspired by a lot of climbers out there because of of that risk management mental mental games that you have to go through yeah it's 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 interesting to hear you guys talk about these um issues in this context because we hear so much of this conversation framed around passion and it's almost the exact opposite it's like dispassionate you know rationalism like um that's actually the key ingredient it's not not so much a passion-based uh calculation so um I'd be interested to hear, uh, just to switch topics, Cody, to to just what the rules are with the 50 project. Like, how does how do you define success? Do you have to hit the summit? Do you have to ski the entire line? What's what are the 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 rules around um, how you check boxes on on the 50 project? So, the 50 classic ski descents of North America. It's a book came out like 10, 11, 12 years ago. Uh, modeled exactly off like the classic climbing book. Um, I forget who are the authors of the 50 classic climbs is a Roper. Second Roper. Roper. Yeah. So yeah. it was kind of based off that book being that like they wanted to make something that like the 50 classic climbs, but for skiing. And I even see it like looking at that book in the climbs, it's just kind of in the same sort of how they judged and picked it out. Like there's a lot of ski descents in the book that are on the mellow, more easy, kind of just like, hey, these are classic fun routes. Like I've I think I've climbed one of the classics, uh, Lover's Leap, and like, you know, I'm projecting 510, which I got to say, I'm I'm pretty honored to be like the guy on this podcast, the worst climber ever <laughs> on this podcast, <laughs> who like, you know, can maybe get himself up a 510. Mm-hmm. But, um, but anyway, so it's got like easy, straightforward lines like Mount Shasta, but then just like the climbs book, you know, where there's like the Hummingbird Ridge on, on um, Logan, like they have some of that in the ski side. So the skiing St. Elias, um, the North Face, skiing the North Face of Mount Robson, and um, 
the south face of University Peak up in Alaska. So like there those lines in particular have maybe seen one if two descents in history. So it's kind of got the full gamut um, from easy to very hard. And in 2019, I kind of really committed myself publicly to be like, hey, I'm going to try and climb and ski all of them um, because no one's ever done that before. Um, it wasn't because no one's ever done it before. But for me, I was just like, for the first time looking at this book and being like, yeah, I really want to ski the Grand Teton. I really want to climb and ski that. I've been thinking about it for years, but my free ride career is keep me away from that. So by committing to this, then like, well, I'm going to just go climb and ski the grand finally and go climb and ski all these like really cool lines around North America. So that was the project I launched. There's a media component of it on YouTube. That's been like a series following it. Every line in the book has its own episode, sometimes multiple episodes if I fail on it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's called the 50 it's on YouTube and it's been pretty, pretty successful. So, um, now I forgot the first question, Andrew, <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I was just curious how you measure success. Um, yeah. do you have to touch the summit, ski the whole mountain? What's the, what are the metrics? Yeah, that's, that's another thing that's up for debate in the ski world. Um, you have more climb based influence people and older generations that have definite rules. Um, and this is again, kind of why I go fight back against the rules because like, you know, in the, what is it in? climb ski world if you want to ski the 14ers i think there's some rule where you have to start within like 30 feet of the summit and if you don't ski within 30 <laughs> feet of the summit it doesn't count which i think is utter bullshit because you're like yeah it was a windier year and like you know the the top ridge is rocky this year but i skied like the meat of the line the, the the steep exposed part or whatever so um for me personally it's about skiing what's the ski line it's kind of like you know it when you see it um like when we go ski the mount moran um the uh god i forget the, the east face the glacier route um it's one of the most amazing skis but like we were 15 feet away from the summit i'm not going to go tag the summit because you're like what there's no point in that like skiing and ski mountaineering to me is still central the ski and i am a skier to start with so i don't want to have these rules that are based around like more climbing atmospheres of being like you got to tag the summit you got to click your skis on right at the highest point of the line and then you're in like if there's like a rock step or just a cornice overhang that you like you'd end up having to repel anyways you're like just ski from right below it but you know i'm more of a new school ski mountaineer um i will say when i first started getting into this project you know one of the reasons i didn't want to get into it was i thought ski mountaineers were dorks and i thought they had all these stupid rules and i thought they were really arrogant in the way they skied and people like shane and all our friends we made fun of ski mountaineers because i we thought it was too serious we thought it was just like these guys with all these rules trying to prove how rad they were um by checking off these rules lists and making rules for other people based on their performances so um to me i've always come at it with a little bit more of a like bucket just go from where you want to go and it counts like i uh but i do get shit from older older generation people saying like you know i've i've had one person in particular who's been a thorn in my side who's a legendary ski mountaineer trying to like discredit what i'm doing and i'm like oh, go fuck back off man i don't really <laughs> care what you have to say <laughs> Um, 
So, uh, you know, in the 50 classic climbs book, very sort of controversial over the years, very misunderstood in some ways, you know, and the authors have had to sort of backtrack on what they were trying to do with it. Uh, because, you know, glaringly the Hummingbird Ridge on Mount Logan, which I believe remains unrepeated. And I'm sure you've, you know, you're, friends or, or colleagues with the smileys and they've tried it a couple of times because they've been trying to do the, the climbing version and other people have too. And, and there's two or three routes in that book that generally shut people down. And, and obviously that's been one of them because since the book came out, no one's ever done it again. Um, is there anything that exists in the ski book like that? Like, a like, a if not unrepeated, like a, a thing that is, you know, going to be pretty difficult to 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 finish um or it tends to stop people in their tracks. yeah pun intended i guess <laughs> there's a there's two um so mount saint elias and the north face of robson and kind of similar like i know middle triple peak um has shut down the smileys and yeah i uh reached out to those guys uh to janelle and mark uh once i started the project and wanted them to be in one of the episodes because I just kind of wanted to learn from them and what it was like to go after this objective based list thing. But uh, I know middle triple, like, but like the whole top of it, like fell off and it's kind of not even repeatable. And they were almost, yeah, like they were kind of almost killed by it. They were trying to kind of go around and do it in a different sort of way. Um, But even that put them, I know that they like, backed off the route one day because it was getting too warm. And as soon as they got back to camp, like a giant cornice or Serac came down and swept the whole route. So they're just like, we're done with this. And Hummingbird Ridge almost killed Mark. And so uh, St. Elias, like it's definitely that. Um, they That route is changing drastically. The weather is heinous and it's killed multiple people. And most people have been failed at trying to ski it. There's some weird kind of, uh, there's a guy that claimed to have skied it because he skied the lower half in May and then flew in in August and skied the upper half. And he claims to have skied it. But I don't know if that that to me maybe not doesn't count. Um, and then other people like uh, the Smiley's almost skied it, but not not the upper section. So it's a really, really difficult one. You're essentially trying to time 18,000 vertical feet, good snow all the way through that. So you you either have ice up on the upper reaches, um, or you have completely avalanching isothermic shit down on the bottom half. So that's a difficult one. And then Robson, man, like the, the first descent on it, um, was done in like 1995 and where they skied exactly is not even skiable anymore. And if you kind of go a little bit more towards the emperor face, um, that portion is rapidly melting and kind of the the ice wall that is on there that can the snow collects to is just shrinking and shrinking and there's more rock steps in it there's more cliffs in it and it's just getting less and less so uh those two lines are yeah like similar in the book like they they might not i might not do them and that's part of part of the project where are you at tally wise um in your mind i mean the the ones you yeah regardless of 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 Totally. Um, well, I'm not going to give away the number right now because I don't give away the oh, okay. upcoming season, but uh, oh, let's say I'm you. getting pretty close. 
But then I also feel really far away because those those cruxes like uh, mm-hmm. we tried Mount St. Elias last year. We were planning again this year. We had some team issues that just didn't quite work out. Um, so uh, we had to back out of that trip. And, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, yeah, it's if I'm going to finish in either two years or 20 years. And I have no idea when it's going to be. And the mother nature might dictate it far before that. Like, uh, you know, Robson may be it maybe done as we speak. I haven't even looked at the North face of it and um, you know, it might not be skiable. And the last time it was skied was 2012. Um, and that's 10 years ago. A lot of things have changed in 10 years. So who, who knows um, what it's going to be like and if I can even attempt it. So Cody, you kind of just alluded to um, the dorky climbing stickler nature of, of rulemaking in the mountains, but I'm curious to know if you've ever or how your experience becoming more of a climber, you know, pushing the limits of five ten, um, <laughs> has that has that taught? Has that kind of changed your your pers- or changed how you think about skiing? Changed how you think about mountains? Has it improved your skiing or approach to ski mountaineering in any way? Yeah, it definitely has. Um, because it's interesting. I've had these debates. I actually had this debate with Alex. And um, when I first started getting into kind of rock climbing, I, you know, living in Tahoe, I don't know why it took me so long to figure out, like, we've got world-class rock climbing in our backyard. And here I was mountain biking every day and the mountain biking here sucks. Um, So I was like, I should go climbing. And I actually watched Valley Uprising. And I remember that movie was like, that movie is amazing. It was super inspiring. And it was just seemed really cool. The culture, the the irreverence, just the, the whole nature of the sport seemed really rad from that movie. And then, you know, I had some friends around here that climbed, um, Emily Harrington and Adrian and then some other skiers that climbed and I was like oh I'm gonna go learn how to climb and then as I started getting into it I kind of I realized there was all these rules man like there was so many things and I'm and I'm a kind of obsessive person and I started just like diving into probably the worst place possible which was like the mountain project forums and learning (laughs) about the sport and I was just like man everyone just shit talks each other and someone does something (laughs) rad and everyone's like no like they hooked their pinky in a bowl that doesn't fucking count or they did it this way and they I don't know there's some what what's the difference between red pink and green and black point or I don't know I was just like (laughs) what the fuck are all these rules and so I was like I I just didn't understand it and like but my my experience with the sport when I started to go out there was that it was different like when I was climbing with my friends it felt like very fun and welcoming um I'll tell you one story though that um one of the first professional climbers I met, and I'm not going to name the person, but um, I just started getting into climbing and we were at a trade show. It was like a dinner with a bunch of industry people. And I sat down next to a professional climber, a legendary professional climber. And I'm like picking their brain, just like trying to be like the dorky guy, like, yeah, I'm getting into climbing. I'm really it's I'm really enjoying it. And we started talking and talking. And then I was like just picking their brain about where they've been. I don't know, things and just trying to dork out on it. And then she looks at my hands and goes like, like you have a, is it a Gorby? It's like when you have like <laughs> Gobi. Gobi. Yeah. Gobi. There you go. Gorby. Gorby. I don't know. <laughs> you, you get climbers in your terms. If you get it in a communist, <laughs> if you get it in a communist country, it's called a Gorby. Gotcha. Otherwise Gobi. it's a Gobi. <laughs> so looks at my hands and goes, I can't believe you have a Gobi there. Oh my God. I've never seen someone have a Gobi there just to, and starts laughing at me. And I was like, 
okay like yeah like i suck at climbing i've told you this already and i'm like getting into it and then starts going starts going into it of being like climbers are the most talented athletes in the world i was like uh, okay i was like there, no other sport has as many has as much talent and physical talent that goes into it and i was like uh, okay. I was like, well, I mean, there's a lot of talented athletes out there. Climbers can't have like a monopoly on this. Right. And starts grilling me and saying skiing is lame and they don't have the athletic talent. I was like, whoa, what the fuck? And so I like walked away from this conversation of just being like, is this what professional climbers are like? Cause these guys are assholes. And so I will say like my first introduction to the sport was a little mixed. And I got to say from the fun that I had out on the rock, but then like meeting people and reading about it was totally different. And I don't know if you guys are so internal, you probably don't notice that. But for me, an outsider, I was like, whoa, this is a weird sport. I hope you got on Mountain Project and slandered this uh, climber anonymously <laughs> and relentlessly. No, I think this is the first time publicly talking about it. Luckily, it was a long time ago. Probably don't even remember it. But um, but yeah, so so that was, I don't know. I think from that experience and just seeing like, I it still comes up to this day. And you guys will talk about it. And, you know, there's good reasons why there's kind of rules in climbing. But for me... For skiing, like I want it to this the experience to be still be central to it. And I don't want rules to infiltrate and start to dominate the conversation. I don't want the the grade to dominate the conversation because like ultimately, like there's rad lines that I've skied that are, you know, world-class style lines. I've skied them in horrible conditions and they're not that fun. And then you ski another line and it wouldn't be as world-class in terms of name. It couldn't go on Instagram and uh, blow up what you just skied, but it was 10 times more fun. So like to me, like those kind of things is something I just try and push back on in our sport um, because I just, I don't want that again to dominate the conversation. You're part of the climbing community, but you've, you're enough removed from it to provide some really wonderful perspective and light on our sport. And I have to admit that you've chagrined me a little bit for having a stick up my ass because I'm, I, I guess I would be counted among the the rural sticklers of the climbing world. And I was th- I, I had forgotten about this until we start had this conversation, but the one and only article I've ever written for Skiing Magazine um, I wrote for Megan Michelson when she was there years ago, and um, it was about uh, Jamie Pierre, his like hundred foot, you know, cliff jump that he did, and where he like landed on his head. And I was like, why is everyone celebrating this? Like he didn't, the dude just like fell off a cliff and landed on his head in the snow. <laughs> like I, you know, I had, I had this like sport climber red point, uh, you know, mindset where it shouldn't count unless you ski out of it. Like that's should be a proper cliff jump. Like you jump off a cliff and then you're away on your skis. You know, you don't just get to dive bomb into like 50 feet of snow and, and, and throw your hands up in, in victory. And so that was the, the one article I wrote, but now I'm, now I'm feeling mortified and, uh, and, and like a, like a, like a priest or something like with a stick up my ass, about, you know, trying to get, you know, enforce these, uh, enforce these rules that maybe aren't necessary or needed. 
Well, I, I don't think you were the only one having that debate at that time. And that was, that was a weird era in skiing when it was just like jump off the biggest cliff possible. We had this little run where people were just trying to jump 100 and 200 and some guy jumped like a 330 foot cliff and accidentally and survived. And so it, it became a, yeah, that was a debate and a little weird era of skiing. But like, again, I just go back to it. It's just like, you know, like, the the nature of these sports is we're all just doing it for fun like we aren't changing the world out here we leave fun awesome lives and getting to go enjoy the mountains is absolutely amazing and so like creating rules can generally be based on ego in my experience so i'm just always maybe even overcorrecting towards just like hey let's just focus on the experience we're all just going out there for fun or for our own reasons like challenge or pushing ourselves and maybe even some other different reasons but like focus on those reasons and not some of these other things yeah well let me ask you a question too about being a professional in both climbing and in in skiing you know being a professional has has been criticized occasionally for a you know hyping yourself b making a bigger deal out of your accomplishments than maybe the deserve but then you know the famous one is like are you risking things that you shouldn't be risking because you're trying to keep your career going talk about being a professional and how you balance all these things in terms of your career and pushing yourself and making media but being able to criticize the sport, which a lot of professionals would never do, you know, on a podcast or on the internet or on Twitter or anything else. Where's your philosophy with all that sort of stuff and how it guides you in uh, keeping your keeping your head on straight? Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. And I will say the one thing is like when you're in the mountains, I've never had a feeling that the business side, the professional side, your sponsors or anything like that dictates any of your decisions. I will I will say like everything is self-motivated. When it comes to the off season, like yeah, maybe those those thoughts start to creep into like, hey, like I gotta do something this year. I gotta like step it up or 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 you know project something or figure something to to continue in this sport. But ultimately when it comes to the moment and the time in the mountains like that I've never had it personally infiltrate my brain. Um, others might say different, but for me, it hasn't. But the the nature of being a professional it, it's a it's a tricky one to to manage um, because you know you are hyping yourself up. You are in order to be good at it, you have to be a good self promoter. Um, I think I try and delineate between myself and my professional self which sounds weird but i try and create boundaries in my own life um like i don't share really my family stuff my kid on my instagram i don't show my house i i have walls of what is kind of my business self and my real self and my real self i know is still motivated a lot to go do rad stuff in skiing. Like I know personally deep down, like these motivations to do something like the 50, like the reason it started was because at one point in my head, I was like, you're not going to be happy with yourself when you're 50, 60, 70 years old. And you didn't try this because you've been dreaming about it for years on end. And it's just something that keeps popping up in your head. So I know my real self ends up to be the motivating factor. Um, I know that people look at athletes and sometimes will think like, oh, they're taking unnecessary risk for their job. And 
I think about like, well, how did they get there? Because they didn't have a job before they became professionals. But in order to get there, they had to do rad stuff and they weren't necessarily had cameras on them. They didn't have uh, the sponsors driving them. It really was internal drive. And I think the, you know, Alex was soloing stuff way before he became famous for soloing stuff. He what soloed uh half dome just kind of on a whim and then people heard about it and yes maybe it's like you want to prove something to the world but at the same time you're mainly i know you're proving it to yourself so that motivation doesn't dip off just because you created a job at it um the creating a job at it yeah that's like a different side of it and you kind of have to use a different part of your brain you have to use the like i gotta email people i gotta create pitches and proposals and whatnot but i i think i've done the decent job of trying to figure out how to delineate between the personal motivations to do stuff and then the job motivations i will also say like i'm in a a very comfortable position as a skier you know i've been a professional skier for like 20 years now. Um, I have a lot of equity in the sport. Like I could probably take a year or two off and still be a professional if I wanted to. And that's, uh, I'm very fortunate for that. And that helps actually at this point, make better decisions in the mountains being like, Oh, I, you know, we were only successful in two lines out of the seven we tried this year. And everyone's gonna be like, all right, whatever you keep, you, you, you've built up enough equity. So, um, when you're younger though, I can see it motivating people in different ways. I'm, can I, I was can gonna... I ask a question? Oh, please. I mean, we you started off the podcast, so I, maybe I already know this, but do do climbers, alpinists, and mountaineers have any respect for ski ski mountaineers? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think so. I yeah. certainly do. Well, yeah. let me, let me, yeah, I wanted to get this in, but then we had moved on. But uh, let me just read. Uh, so I, when I was mentioning uh, Chantal Astorga, who I don't know, um, I'd love to interview someday as well. But here, here's, uh, she did the Cassin. She sold the Cassin. And um, which is, you know, a lot of snow climbing, but it's also a lot of technical climbing. Notably, she climbed in a pair of lightweight ski mountaineering boots with extra warm liners and carried skis. So part of her speed on it, which was like 16 hours, she, you know, not quite exactly, but she she definitely definitely blazed up and down was the blazing down, I think, in a pair of skis um, and climbing the technical part with skis and and uh, nobody is allowed to diss that woman because she's she's a, a brilliant climber and a brilliant mountain mountaineer and apparently a brilliant uh ski mountaineer as well so i think the respect it goes across the board and it's just on an individual basis and what people get done and whether they have skis or not um is, is just part of the mix yeah and that's what when it comes back to all these this bigger discussion about especially with rules like to me it's just like the style is everything in that it's just like was that cool like when you create like the, the the rules, then you start to have things checked off. But if you just kind of say like that was super cool or it could have been cooler, but that was still cool or, you know, not super cool. You know, they helied to the top of Denali and skied down and you're like, that's not that cool. But if you like climbed Cassine Ridge with skis on and then skied back down to camp, like that's pretty badass. Like I've actually that's kind of. Uh, in my little back of my mind dream list one day because I was up on Denali when uh, Jim Morrison and Hillary Nelson climbed Cassine and we were texting back and forth with them while they were on the route and you know just hearing their stories from it it sounds like an amazing climb and then to get to ski back down like the West Ridge or skied uh, what I got to ski which was the Mesner Coulard which was one of the greatest runs of my life like that 5,500 foot Coulard from 
19,000 feet straight back down to camp. Like that is as, as cool as it gets. And I even looked at it. I remember we had a, uh, one person in particular that was kind of suffering from some altitude symptoms, didn't know they were on the summit, kind of that style where you're going, oh, starting to see some haste signs, clicked into skis, skied right off the mountain, got down a thousand feet, all of a sudden feels better. So to me, like, even when it comes to that high altitude stuff, like skiing can be a safety mechanism. You can descend so quickly. Um, you know, we climbed at such a leisurely place up Denali. I think we left camp at 11 a.m. and we were at the summit by like eight and I was down back at camp by 10 at night. And it's, it's uh, to me, I just think it's uh, the, the ski factor into it just creates this really fun slash like almost in certain ways safer if you're really good at skiing way to get down mountains. Obviously, there's certain lines that doesn't count for, but a lot of lines like that, like it's an awesome way to get back down. Patreon bonus episode for Rope Guns Only. We take you on a journey of sight and sound, of pin scars and off-widths, of slander and rigid definitions as we tackle the mystery of the Salate's legendary Pitch 19. Once heralded as perhaps the crux of the greatest free climb in the world, Pitch 19 then suddenly disappeared from the record, being sucked into the seething void of obscurity that is the twilight zone of revisionist history. Become a rope gun today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and join us on a dangerous and exciting search for Pitch 19. Was it murdered by a German prince? Was it just conveniently shunned like a difficult in-law? Or is Pitch 19 poised for its harrowing revenge? Join us at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout and these ridiculous promos. On today's final bit, we feature a little bit of climbing funk from Patreon rope gun Craig Bruner and drummer Sam Sartorius. Aside from Craig's bass groove and Sam's masterful beat, the first sounds you will hear are a brush on a jib, feet hitting a crash pad, a rack of cams, and that satisfying click of a grigri being flicked shut. For a better sonic picture and a video of this totally cool music being made, go to the link in our show notes at runoutpodcast.com. Incidentally, Craig's other musical endeavor is Atme, a death metal outfit on Unique Leader Records. Look for their full-length album, Mephitic, in whatever pit of hell you look to for your metal needs. But for now, we give you grigri funk. Thank you. 
You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Kalous, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. 